In this episode, Ryan and I discuss 1090 policies in depth with particular examples from actual cases. We had fun and hope you enjoy listening. Thank you. Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. And now listen, this, this, this is going to be fun, whether you love us or hate us. <laughs> um, probably done more prep work here. Me, I have done more prep work here than I ever have. And there's been so much redacting going on, I feel like a CIA lab. <laughs> <laughs> so, Either that or the FDA, huh? <laughs> Or Pfizer or Moderna yeah. or whatever, but we're not talking about juicy jabs or any of that. Um, but we should we should talk about the uh, mortality experience of life insurance companies in the future. Okay. Which we mentioned on the follow-up episode to the think tank in February. So there's some of that in there, but... Well, I'm going to, I'm talking about going a little more in depth because this is a little more in depth, but still, there's still more to come. I know. I don't want to throw a carrot out there. It's meant to be encouragement to Mr. Griggs, who's a busy man, busy schedule, to work this longer <laughs> content in. Okay. Um, and so here's here's this, what we're going to talk about today. We've talked about many times um, in the past, but maybe not quite to this detail. This is a specific example. There's, yeah, several specific examples, but one in particular that's your client that going deep in um and and what i want to say here is we've talked about it there'll be more to talk about but this specific example all of what we're going to talk about today comes from interactions with clients past current prospective clients cases and individuals individuals that we're currently respectively working with so you know this is not material just to uh, to have something to talk about um, and to make a, an entertaining uh, episode on a podcast. What goes on here affects people and their families, right? There's a you know a bigger cause than just a viral episode of a podcast. <laughs> okay, so yeah. break it down for us, Mr. Griggs. Okay, so this is and his name. We're going to call him Bob. Uh, Bob is the client. Bob does well. Bob's 45. He's in good health. He has no dependents. White collar worker. Uh, no intention really of retiring in the conventional sense. Going to work for as long as God lets him. Uh, Bob discovered IBC uh, maybe a year or so ago. And he went online, as we do, and did his re started doing his research. And last year... Uh, acquired two policies from two different very well-known companies. Big four. Big four companies. And they are, like you said, we've talked about this before, they're 1090 contracts, right? And I'm going to say premium numbers. Don't let the premium numbers scare you. If the numbers scare you, just shave off a zero or something, okay? So it's $90,000 in total premium. 50000 is going to one contract. That's built 1090. 40000 is going to another contract, built 1090. Both contracts are from the same agent's office. Not going to say the agent's name. Comes from the same guy. How do we know this? The agent's name is printed on the damn illustration. And that, if you know what you're looking for, <laughs> right? This is one of the things I was saying on Facebook. I did a whole Facebook post about this. It's like, yeah, but when did you make the Facebook post? Because that's a really good post that you should. Yesterday, is, so early March, so twenty three nine, three ten. 
Okay. I'll turn them into blog, full-length articles. You know he will. Yeah. Because there's, I'm going to go to 10, because this, there's, it's such a great, this is such a great case of the consequences of the 1090 approach versus what could have been done. Because these policies are, like I said, they're just brand new last year, right? And so what I want to, what I want to do is highlight some of the, the particular riders on one of the contracts in particular, a blended term PUA rider. I then want to discuss another, which will another separate problem, the provision of an incomplete illustration and why that's done. And we have some examples of why it might be the case that an incomplete illustration is provided. Right. So there's, there are several cases. Those are two different cases, one case, two different companies, right? And we have, I think one, two, three, four, five other, five other cases with three additional companies, right? So this is not, we're not just picking on one company or one, yeah. you know, agent or one office or one advisor or even one construct, right? Okay. Yeah. And I'm glad you, well, I'm glad you said that because <clears throat> people say, well, I can imagine people saying, well, they should say the company, like, tell us who to look out for. And it's like, it's not, that's not the point, right? The point, the, the example is to demonstrate one particular manifestation of this problem, right? The, the important point is the principle, right? The, the, the idea, the concept, like you've said, if you don't understand the concept, the details don't matter. But if you un understand the concept, the details don't matter. True statement. Like, you need to be able to see, see this in whatever company it might come from, right? It's, it's, so it's not about the particular company. It's not about the particular agent. These are just examples that illustrate the broader concept. Uh, so that's why we're not going to name companies or individuals. It's not about that. It's not about it's them. It's really not. Yeah. You know, it really, and I've said it many times, I'm going to continue to say it. This construct, this mode of doing business, this operation, um, is a an example, an application of the continued the, or the continuation of flawed thinking. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, the agents, you get a license, it's the easiest license to get besides a driver's license, a life insurance license. And I know, look, I know we both know that there's a lot of life insurance agents that listen. We appreciate you, the regular listeners. We appreciate you. And we also know that there are a lot of um, agents that like haters that like to listen. And the reason they keep listening is because they keep learning, right? <laughs> Even though they want to disparage Nelson Nash, the IBC, you know, construct and never give Nelson credit and disparage the NNI and, and then disparage us personally because we're too harsh or, you know, whatever. Then why do you keep listening? Oh, wait, I just answered that. Yeah. Okay. The consumer, when the consumer, when the potential consumer has the ability to understand what's going on, they would never do any of these. They would never purchase these, what I've originally called Frankenstein illustrations. They would never purchase contracts built like this. Right. Okay. And, it, and what makes this particular case with Bob so illustrative is that because the contract's so new, the, the two that he already has, because they're so new, you know, it's very easy for me to go create what I, what would have been done had sure. he just started correctly in the first place and then compare the results and which we'll do here and the results long term late life age 70 we'll use as a benchmark 
is millions of dollars of difference. Right. Let me say this, <clears throat> that um, there is third-party software that exists that agents like this use to disparage policies that have been in force, right? And we're talking about illustrations, and we all know illustrations are not right, and they're wrong when you print, because over the long period, dividends go up and dividends go down. That's beside the point. Here, by construct, you're limited. The owner is limited on what they can do, right? So this is not uh, a comparison of using third-party software so I can manipulate the numbers, because all of the, the what we're going to be going through and talking about and looking at is and they are illustrations that are manipulated to the nth degree. So uh, it's why I don't use third-party software, you know, to analyze what you have in force and compare those numbers on that illustration. I'd get an enforce my example. I'd get an enforce illustration on a policy that may be four, five, six, or seven years old, and then the agent would create a new. Um, illustration that's highly manipulated, right? And then they would use a third-party software to manipulate you, <laughs> right? And so I just want to make that. Yeah. And and our use of the illustrations today is unlike the common approach, which is all about the numbers. Oh my gosh, what's the, you know, yeah. I'm going to, the expert analysis of that number is bigger than that number. Oh, wow. Like, no, that, this is reading the language, the English words, describing the structure of these policies. Some of this print is in bold. Yeah, and repeated more than once, but still ignored, or in some cases, just eliminated from the file that goes to the client. Yeah, this happens. And my understanding, it's always on the various illustrations that the illustration is not complete unless you got all the pages well, and the no, agent wait. signs There's, it. Uh, I have that highlighted. Mm. Somewhere on every illustration, this exact or similar language exists. This illustration is complete only if all pages are attached and the producer's name and address and signature appear. Yeah. All right. So when you, and you know, you mentioned earlier the agent's name is always at the bottom. You know, clients, prospective clients send us illustrations. And invariably, most of the time, the agent blacks out their name, right? <laughs> but then generally always, they forget that one page that they didn't black out the name. <laughs> so the illustration is incomplete unless all pages are present. And the agent's name is on there. I wonder if there's something in the law about that. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, okay. I'm sure insurance commissions would, be, would love to hear about that practice. But okay, so getting back to Bob. So again, two policies. Uh, we only have it. We have an incomplete illustration for one of the policies on purpose. Yeah. In fact, I asked the client, talked to him yesterday. Uh, you know, did you know that it's unethical at, in the least? Well, you ask him if he had the other pages. Yeah. And, and, he and said, he's like, no. what? What? Yeah. yeah. It was a news that there would even be other pages. So he hadn't received them. And I've encouraged him to, of course, go and get it. And Pure speculation, but I think the idea is that a disclosure that would appear on those pages has been eliminated. And that disclosure says this illustration shows one or more PUA payments after year one that exceed a specified multiple of a base policy premium. The multiple 
is three times the base policy premiums in years two through 10. So there's a 1090 illustration, 10% to the base, and then nine times into the PUA, which violates that company's structure beyond the first year. The multiple is three times the base policy premium in years two through 10. So if I paid a $10,000 base, I'm only guaranteed by contract to be able to pay a $40,000 total premium, right? But I'm going to illustrate yes. 90. And I'm, but I'm not going to show you the whole illustration because I don't want you to see this disclosure, hmm. right? And then um, that ratio is one times the base after year 10. So a, a year 11 and beyond, it's only one times the base. So if I'm paying $10,000 in base premium, I can only pay by contract $20,000 in year 11 and beyond. All right, it continues. One of the conditions, like payments in excess of this limit are subject to approval. One of the conditions may be that the insured provides satisfactory evidence of insurability. So that is not a guarantee. Right. If the company doesn't want to receive premium, they can just increase the underwriting. I mean, they have to, they can't willy nilly increase underwriting and decrease underwriting, right? But if they don't want to take the premium, they'll require you to go through underwriting. Okay. So when we, and I have talked many times about the contractual obligation is always the base premium, whether you write the check or not, the base premium will be paid. Whether you do a premium offset, paid from dividends, reduced, paid up, that's the obligation is the base premium. The riders, you're not even obligated to pay the premium for those riders, most of which you would want to pay, mm -hmm. right? And then the minimum PUA premiums, that's an obligation if you want the PUA premium. So, and my point here is there's an obligation. A portion of your premium is an obligation, whether you write a check for it or not. And then there's the other, the PUA premium, the other riders would be a contractual right that you have to pay, not a contractual obligation. So the contractual rights that you have are shredded on this, yeah. with this particular company, with that, you know, 1090 design or any other design that violates that. Yeah. So in, in this particular case, the total premium is 50,000, 5,000 of which is going to base. There's an annually renewing term writer in here, which is a whole other thing that I don't like. Uh, but so, and it's the 50,000 is illustrated paid from age 45 to age 56, 12 years. Mind you, white collar worker, high income, no intention of retiring, age 57, can't pay any more premium into it. And that's on an incomplete illustration that assumes that the full 50 in the years prior is even payable, which as the disclosure you've just gone over, which by the way, that disclosure comes from the same company. Yeah. As this is the one I'm talking now, to you about now. You know, I've talked about this before, and then the, uh, there's some videos that have been put out that cursory mentioned this. Ah, oh, a pretty good agent pointed that out. But the contract says something different. By all means, let's see the contract. Mm -hmm. Because the illustration is not going to have one disclosure, and the contract have another. All right, so... And the, the policy is built based on what's illustrated. <laughs> that's the foundation <laughs> of the entire contract. All right, so that's the one, right? And, you know, there's, you know, maybe that disclosure's in there, maybe not, probably is. Uh, 
It know, depends on how it's illustrated. Depends on how, annually renewing term, right? The 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 amount of we, why do we use term? We use term to increase the death benefit in order to allow for a high PUA payment as a proportion of the total outlay in a non-MEC, you know, tax preferable fashion. Right? So people use term. I use term. Nothing wrong with term in general, but what I don't like is this one-year term. And you've put it before, one-year term, OYT, annually renewing term, all that refers to the same thing. I liked how you've put it in the past is that, I mean, it, it get if it doesn't fully, it gets this close to violating the principle of insurance because the, and in fact, there's a, a line in here somewhere that says the, uh, the uh, the uh, the premium for the one year term is not guaranteed. I don't know where where it is, but the the problem is that as we get older and our attained age rises, so too does our mortality risk, and it does so in an exponential, nonlinear fashion. And so the premium, so I'm sorry, the death benefit per premium dollar becomes more expensive at an exponentially rising uh, pace over time. And every time there's a renewal which in the case of one-year term, annually renewing term, is every year, there's a recalculation of the premium that's due for the amount of death benefit included in that rider. And we, who knows what the mortality experience of the company will be in the future. And who, you know, it might turn out that the mortality experience is different than what was originally illustrated. What? Like 40% increase in one particular company in the last quarter of last year and a general 10% increase across the industry? What could go wrong? Yeah. And this, so this is a, a the this one primary one that I'm talking about, the 50000 per year for 12 years. It's got an annually renewing term on it. The other policy, $40,000 total premium, also 1090 structure, has another kind of annually renewing term rider on it, one that we call a blended term PUA rider. This is a rider where one premium is paid to that rider, a portion of it goes to pay the premium for an annually renewing amount of temporary death benefit, and the rest of that premium goes to PUA where it purchases permanent paid up additional death benefit. And over time, theoretically, ostensibly, allegedly, the amount of death benefit that must be bought with that rider decreases and the amount of permanent death benefit that's bought with that rider increases over time, such that eventually at some point in the future, which they call a crossover year, no more term is necessary. And it's just PUA, right? So we're kind of phasing out, ostensibly phasing out this annually renewing term uh, death benefit. Now, will that happen? <laughs> Who knows? But if it doesn't happen, the policy owner is responsible, right? You know, that's a very old uh, concept in the life insurance business. You know, permanent life insurance costs more. The premium is higher. Temporary death benefit costs less term. So you buy as much permanent as you can. And then we all have a need for death benefit. Most all of us have a need for death benefit. So you increase your total death benefit with term. So over your lifetime, you're supposed to earn more. And so you buy more permanent, whether you, and, and you buy less term, whether you drop it off or convert it or what have you. My point here is this blended PUA, nothing wrong with it per se, other than, you know, what we're talking about here. And, and 
I want to say that this is a construct of the life insurance companies. Very old concept. This is just a version of that concept. You know, increasing cash value, your need for death benefit goes down in the future, blah, 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 blah. When PUAs, additional PUAs, you know, the dividend being able to be, the dividend paid to the PUA has been out a long time. These high PUA, the ability to pay a PUA premium, you know, above the dividend is relatively new. It didn't really exist prior to the 90s, right? Um, <clears throat> so I just want to make that point. And let me see. If I pay a premium to the blended PUA, you know there's a charge. There's a charge on every life insurance company to pay the PUA premium. And every now and then a company will misconstruct a, a rider like that and not have a high enough charge. Well, they'll take that rider off, make it unavailable for new policyholders, and, and they'll correct that. So when you pay a PUA premium, there's a charge for the PUA premium. And, it, and it's anywhere from about 6% all the way up to 14% in the first year. Okay. And then in addition to that, there's one year term that goes up in price every year because you had a birthday one year closer to mortality. All right. Yeah. Oh, and then the non-guaranteed dividend that's paid or should be paid into the PUA, the non-guaranteed dividend. So how uh, serious is your company uh, even considering paying the future dividends that they're illustrating? It's a legitimate question. I don't know, but I have my opinions. So the non-guaranteed dividend that goes into the PUA is supposed to pay for the non-guaranteed rising cost of the term <laughs> after a charge has been applied. All right, and all this is uh, spelled out very clearly in your life insurance policy, which is a contract. And these disclosures and the language is, uh, an awful lot of it is even contained in the illustrations. Yeah, and that's a in this particular case, that's exactly what's happening. The idea is that the dividend allocation is to this rider, right? It's to pay for this rider rather than just pure PUA, as Nelson on page forty-four and becoming your own banker says it should. Pure dividend to the pure PUA just dang near goes straight to dollar for dollar increase in cash value, right? Contributing to your ongoing compounding. Yeah. And buys dollar-for-dollar dollar death benefit and causes every future dividend to go up. Right. So instead of that happening, we're yeah. going to shave off some unknown amount to go to annually renewing term that generates no cash value that buys death benefit that will fall off. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. And then, so this is the exact language here of this writer. It says, keeping in mind that the dividend is supposed to be paying for the premium on this annually renewing term, the premium, the, the, the death benefit in which is becoming more expensive every year. Therefore, it, says, it shows, generally illustrates that the term death benefit decreases. Yeah. Right. So it, it says, it is anticipated but not guaranteed that over time the amount of term insurance will decrease and the amount of paid up additions will increase until the crossover year. The crossover year is the point in time when the paid up additional insurance death benefit is equal to the target face amount and the purchase of one year term is no longer necessary. And then here's the fun part. Based on the illustrated dividend schedule, the crossover for this policy does not occur 
based on assumptions in the tabular values and does not 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 occur based on assumptions does in not, the not, not occur in the supplemental values in the event of a dividend decrease the initial level of death benefit coverage may not be able to be maintained even if all illustrated cash premium payments are made what? future additional premium payments may be required in order to maintain the initial level of death benefit Oh, and by the way, the term charge rate schedule for the one-year term insurance coverage is not guaranteed. I mean, you, we were talking about a contract the other day or some time ago where it's like the language is so broad you could drive a truck through it. It's like, why would all that verbiage be in there? That narrows it down pretty good right there. That that They're telling, they're saying that if... What what's illustrated? Uh, these illustrations aren't worth the paper they're not printed on. Like the, <laughs> the it, it, they're telling you that the company has the right to adjust the pricing. It's up to them. It's not up to you. And then if you don't pay it, oh by the way, what's the MEC limit on this policy? Oh, is it forty thousand sixty eight dollars? Is it literally eighteen dollars more than the contractual maximum allowable to be paid? Okay, so what happens when the lo and behold the Pricing of the term goes up beyond what was expected, or the dividend is insufficient to cover, or both, such that the client then has to pay up, right? Uh, the additional ad premium. Additional premium payments may be required. Okay, so now you get to either make those, and by the way, this annually renewing term, it'll happen every year. And so if you don't make that additional payment, well, then what happens? Well, in the event of a dividend decrease, the initial level of death benefit coverage may not be able to be maintained. And so the death benefit might go down. The term death benefit might go down. Why is the term there? Oh, to prevent the mech. That's how the, the amount of death benefit on the rider is why we could get the mech limit $18 above the maximum contractual payable premium. And so if that the, the, the policy owner is backed into a corner. Either you pay up the additional money for the rider, where it's going to add additional death benefit that won't stay on the contract and it won't generate any cash value. Either you pay that in order to maintain the preferable tax treatment in that one year. Oh, and by the way, if you lose the tax treatment, that's permanent. It'll be uh, treated as a modified endowment contract out into the future. So Every year, this opportunity is going to come around where you could potentially be backed into a corner, pay the additional term amount, or lose some of the death benefit on that term rider. And if some of the death benefit is lost, the MEC limit will go down. In this case, it'll certainly go down below the contractual maximum payable premium, giving you the opportunity to MEC your own policy in the future. If you wanted to stick to this made-up schedule of premiums of 40,000 for 21 years. Who well, wants that? Nobody. No, nobody would buy these if they understood them. But look, Ryan, I, I don't want a death benefit. I don't care about the death benefit. I just want to become my own banker. I only want cash value. You hear that often. If a point like yeah. this is made, um, yeah, I, well, I don't care about it. Look, look, you cannot buy life insurance without a death benefit. Okay, now let's think about this. The guaranteed cash value of the base policy must grow to equal the face amount of the policy at age 121. And now if I'm going to collateralize, pay high premium into life insurance, and I'm going to enjoy that in the future, whether it's through withdrawals or loans, 
especially in loans, if I get into passive income time, I start taking loans to have this tax-free income that everybody wants to talk about and enjoy and try to illustrate with these monstrosities, uh, policies that are not, they're not going to happen. I'm going to take this tax-free income and not repay the loan, right? I might pay the interest on the loan. You know, first I've got a premium offset, number one, because that obligation that I keep talking about <laughs> is going to be paid whether you write a check for it or not. So the policy, even if you premium offset, is the loan, I mean, the premium is going to be paid, period. And then, and then I'm going to take a loan, right? And maybe I start taking loans at age 70. And let's say it's a zero, you know, it's just five parts to a future value calculator. Zero value now. Uh, the loan has no value right now. Then I take a loan of whatever, 50000 a year for 20 years, and I assume a rate, the loan rate. I can calculate how long that loan or how how large that loan is going to grow. And that loan cannot out-compound the death benefit. So if I'm forced to reduce my death benefit in the future and take passive income through loans, it is not going to happen. And if it does happen without a problem, and then the policy mechs, at year 80, what kind of a structure support system do you have, sir, or ma'am, or you agent? What kind of a support system do your clients have that will allow them or help them or ensure that they can manage an outstanding loan on a policy? I'm just saying, you need a death benefit. How much? I don't know. Other than what you need today, we can all calculate that. You have obligations then you want to address your obligations. How much income or how much death benefit do you need in the future? I don't know, but I can use some simple math and get pretty dang close. And it's not going to be less. <laughs> That's the other part. The, de the death benefit in these, of course, because there's annual during term, fluctuates, right? Rather than a nice steady increase over time, there's this fluctuation thing. And then, okay, so... No, you're talking about flexibility. How much flexibility do I have in those? Are we there yet? Am I, you, am I jumping going the game? No. <laughs> okay. So, well, wait, wait, before we go there, because I want to make a point here. I don't need the death benefit. I only need the cash value, right? So I only want to be my own banker, practice banking, but then shred everything that Nelson Nash has done and don't give him credit, rarely give him credit, or completely avoid giving him credit, Right? It's like, it makes no sense. You want to talk about banking, you put IBC in your name, banking this, banking that, banking this, and banking that, and never give Nelson credit. Why? Because you don't know what Nelson did. If you did, you wouldn't do that. Agent, I'm talking to you. <laughs> all right? But then, it's just, it goes all over me, you know, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not give Nelson any credit for his work, but then I'm going to bastardize every damn thing he did. Mm-hmm. Don't cut and, that out. And call it IBC. AV Ninja. I meant to say those cuss words. <laughs> okay. All right. So then, so we, we cite this language that says, look, if you, uh, you know, you made, in fact, there's another passage in here. Uh, if the dividends together with your rider payments and the surrender value of paid up additions are insufficient to pay for the cost of the one year term, you will be billed for the difference. Failure to pay the difference will result in the target death benefit being reduced so that the rider is reduced paid in full. Okay, does that happen is the question. And the answer is yes. I have a little letter here from a different client, but a pol has a policy from the same company. What, you mean it actually happens? It actually happens? <laughs> yes. Uh, so different client, policy from the same company with the same rider. Okay, so different client, but 1090 structure, might even be the same agent. Uh, what? Yeah. 
gets a letter. How long? She, how old is the letter? This is from 2020. Oh, so they're still in business. And this oh, they po- must be doing well. This policy had been in force for all of four years. Conveni- oh, okay. I got it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Con- I, I con- thought it was older. Sorry. Conveniently past the clawback period on the commission, but that's a whole separate thing. What? Um, okay, so this little one-page letter says that we're recommending a right... Recommending. The language here is really something to behold. I mean, the mob would be... Uh, you know, they, they'd be impressed. It's a recommended... Well, it's here drawing a distinction between them and the mob. Maybe the mob works there. Maybe they <laughs> Maybe. learned from the mob. Maybe the mob mentored them. I don't know. Uh, I'm just saying the language is like very interesting. So this says, the current projected dividends combined with the current rider premium will not be sufficient to reach crossover. Therefore, we recommend the rider premium be increased as follows. From 8,133 to 8,757.49. An increase of around $600, maybe 8 to 9% of the total in the one year. In the one year. Four years into the policy. If you would like to make the change, please complete the enclosed blah, blah, blah by a certain time period. You are not required to increase your rider premium to the new recommended amount. However, declining to do so may result in one, the need to pay higher rider premium in future policy years. Hmm. The failure of the rider to achieve crossover to fully paid up insurance on your specified target date. Or, number three, a reduction of the death benefit in future policy years. And then there's this insidious little line, you chose a specific amount of life insurance for a reason. You know, it's like, guilting you it's always it. a consumer's you know, fault how you 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 had you yeah. wanted this amount for a reason and by the way in the context of banking there is a reason the reason is to be able to pay a high pua without causing the modified endowment contract all three of those things either in totality or individually are going to happen with every construct yes. like this all three of them are going to it's a matter of time and then we talk about the met test right and you can look on the illustration. You can Google it up. Um, prove me wrong. Look, I don't know everything. I'm a student. I'm subject to be corrected. All right. Now, I'm not inviting a bunch of hate stuff, okay? <laughs> the MEC test is the same as a seven-pay test. He's in year four. Year four. Year four. And you know what? After the initial seven-pay test, there's going to be another seven-pay test and another seven-pay test and another seven-pay test. Right, and so if you can avoid, look, a mech is not the end of the world. Uh, Quote verbatim, Nelson Nash, which I have come to understand and believe. However, quote continuing, if you can avoid it, you you should. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's a it's a matter of time before these policies become mechs, and or. You have to reduce the premium. Now, these are young people that we're generally speaking of. Every one of these cases are still, these people are still young, producing, accumulating. They're, you know, they're not even in the prime earning years of their life. They are going to earn more. I mean, I choose to be an optimist, Mm -hmm. okay? And you're forcing them to reduce the premium. It makes no sense. Okay, well... Maybe I'll just go buy another policy. Well, of course you've got to buy another policy. Why? Because you got to go through that loss of liquidity, although they squeeze that down as far as they possibly could. You still have to go through it again. 
So how many times do you want to go through that? How many times do you want to go through the startup period of a policy? Three times, four times, five times? If these individuals were properly insured, properly capitalized, they would be forced to go through these things two, three, and four, and five times. If they are able to pass underwriting. If. Do you think that one-year term is convertible? No. What? Why would it be convertible? It's there for a year. <laughs> this is supposed to go down. What, are they going to convert it into a whole? This, by the way, it's not going to be there. There's not going to be much of it there in yeah. 5, 10, 15 years. So if you want to practice banking, you're forced <laughs> to go through underwriting again. The older I get, that I mean, the just bought two policies last quarter of last year, 2021. You know, I'm... I'm well-seasoned in my age. I get standard. And in parentheses, <laughs> right, they're given the reason that I'm standard, and it's built. I mean, that's the politest way ever of calling me fat, <laughs> right, which I appreciate getting standard. Yeah, I'll take standard all day. <laughs> <laughs> I could show you how. I, I'm, so my, I don't want to go through underwriting no more than anyone else does, right? I surely don't want to be forced to go through underwriting. Right. Right. To be able to continue to pay a premium. Yes. Yeah. And then and then you're in that startup phase over and over and over. There is such a better way. Um, and we're going to get to that. We're not even halfway there. Yeah. So before I, I have cumulative statistics, like comparing how all that would work out, even if the even if we even if we can believe even if we make the assumption that we can believe the premiums on the illustration are payable, which is not going to be the case. But even if we accept that, we can look at what the non-guaranteed cash value is out into the future. This is good. So yeah. I, mean, I feel like Dr. Bob Murphy sometimes, he's like, let me break it down for you. <laughs> not that you need it. I need it for me. Okay. So the young man here, without just assuming that the premiums can be paid in the original two monstrosities, which cannot. <laughs> which cannot. But okay. Point it out. It cannot be done. It will not be done. But assuming that that is done, compared, and he's going to go through all this, right? Um, I feel like the, what is the knight's tale, the young blonde-headed guy from, uh, oh my gosh, the knight's tale, he, he, he Keith died. Ledger. Keith Ledger. Keith Ledger. Yeah. You know, the, the town crier, the guy that would walk out in front of him and, oh, <laughs> hell, this guy, I feel like him. <laughs> okay, my point being is he did a great analysis here and is giving more grace than, than, than the, than the two illustrations deserve. It cannot be done, and it's pretty much disclosed in every document that the client signs that it won't be done. But assuming that it can be done, I mean, just think how this is very powerful. Yeah. Then uh, compared to what if you did it right and include and kept that, or what if you started completely over, mm -hmm. which um, neither of us are opponent or uh, proponents of replacing policies if you have a policy that is has some maturity on it that is properly built we as a matter of practice do not encourage replacement of policies disclosure right okay sorry however that's supposed to juice you up <laughs> <laughs> um, especially like in this case, the, the other policies are, policies are so new. Uh, if he did restart, he'd end up with more death benefit. He'd have better contractual. Uh, everything would be better. But this example, this little comparative analysis here. Okay, we assume the fifty thousand remains payable into the one contract. We assume the forty thousand remains payable into the the second policy, and then. The, the, the client's desire was, look, I want to expand. I want to pay as much premium as possible. 
He has the income to support it. He has a unique situation with his company where the company per- pays for dang near everything. And so a lot of his income is just free cash flow. No dependents, right? Active in the lending of money to other people, uh, family, business associates, right? He's got repeat borrowers. So he, he's already banking. He's just he's using cash to do it. probably charitable too. Yeah. So the idea was, okay, I want to expand as much as possible. So scenario one is... Keep the contracts you have. Let's assume those premiums remain payable. They're not, but let's assume it anyway. And then let's expand as much as we can from a financial underwriting perspective with a a properly structured contract. In this particular case, I'm just telling you, that worked out to another $80,000 in in premium. That would bring his total premiums across these three policies, two that he already had, one more from me, to $170,000 a year. And that would be, that number though is $170,000 a year payable for the first 12 years, right? Then because the the structure of these other contracts, the total premium payable is going to start decreasing, right? Because the the one policy where it's 50 grand for 12 years, that's going to shut off in year 13. Okay. So that means 170 goes to 120,000 and that stays the same for another nine years, up until year 21, when the 40,000 no longer becomes payable. So the premiums into this system will must decrease because even if we just assume, even if we assume generously that what's illustrated on those other two contracts will actually happen, but that's fine. Let them have that. No, that is being generous because it won't happen. It won't happen. It won't happen. It can't happen. Yeah. So the, the idea is maximum premium for as long as possible while retaining the contracts he already owes and granting the assumptions on the illustration that are made up. And that starts out at 170,000. Scenario two is. If the idea is we want to pay as much as possible, okay, let's do that, but let's wipe the slate clean. Let's setting aside these other two. What could be possible then? Well, from a financial underwriting perspective, that number is a bit higher. It's 180,000. So 180 versus 170, they're close. But because the 180 would be built with sufficient base and a proper long dated level term writer, that 180 is payable for not 12 years. Not 21 years, but 30 years. Nice, long, contractual right to pay that long of the time period. And properly designed, it allows him to pay more premium. The others used up too much uh, death benefit or his insurability, right? When, when, you know, when I use the word contortion, Frankenstein, I'm being very lazy in language, but that's part of it, right? Right. You, You can't even pay a proper premium that you want to and have the ability to so yeah and so in this case you know 30 years that would mean from 45 to 75 look he may be paying a big old high premium at in years 25 to 30 he might not he has the right to but he is not bound to but we give him that right if he should want it and if he to the contractual right i mean the obligation compared to the right that's a and so, so we can, we, I, that's a very simple, the solution is so simple. Long dated level term writer, contractual authority to pay the premium for as long as possible. Assume that all the other stuff we can keep in force, whatever. Okay. So the question is, what's the long term effect? Well, let's pick a year out in the future. I picked age 70 because it's a nice round number. 
The cumulative cash value, non-guaranteed, generous assumption, the cumulative cash value in scenario one, where he keeps the two policies and buys as much as he can in a third one, the cumulative cash value across those three contracts at age 70 comes out to about $4.5 million. Big number, right? More than the cost basis. Um, Not going to happen. Because the cash value in the first two contracts is not going to get there. But best case scenario that can happen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Then scenario two, one policy, very simple, correctly built, properly designed, maximum contractual authority, cash value, age 70, 7.27 million. What? 4.5 compared to 7.27. Which, I mean, at some point, it's like, would you rather retain all of the contractual complications, all of the loss of control, all of the loss of the ability to pay a PUA in order to achieve a lower cash value in the future? Or would you prefer maximum contractual authority for as long as possible with as little uncertainty as can be done in the business in exchange for Higher cash value. In fact, not just higher, much higher, right? <laughs> like almost $2 million more higher. Uh, double percentages. <laughs> more than $2 million. I mean, it's like... Well, look, Ryan, surely that harmed him if he were to reevaluate and start over correctly. Surely he's harmed. He can't lend the money that he's been lending, right? He can't give away the money he's been giving away, right? I mean, he's got to be harmed. And so, wait, you're going to make more money, you know, your, your commission. Are you doing this for commission, sir? Yeah. I mean, I mean, <laughs> what? I mean, surely he's harmed in some way. And look, you know, it really, oh it really pisses me off because the guy is a, I like him a lot, Bob, and he listens and, uh, you know, he, he's very upfront about this. It's like, you know, I don't, not super social, you know, not like a antagonistic kind of guy. I'm a little more disagreeable than he is probably. Um, but now it's like, okay, I've got what I've got, but the, this is the honest representation of what could be. Yeah. And now you got to like unwind out of the prior contracts and I don't like, I'm, I'm making the guy feel bad about what he did when he did it in good faith. And I'm not trying to like, criticize the decision just for the sake of it but at the end of the day that's what that is and then there's something different and the reason we talk about this the reason we go through examples like this is not to beat up anybody in particular but to make you aware that this is the alternative this is the trade-off and so in the banking with life hater group pages where we're, you know, sending tabular de- sending uh, bad uh, pictures of tabular details of illustrations of those kinds to us, of, policies. Of, of these policies, yeah. you know, with, with numbers that won't be payable to argue about when, oh, we're going to go cash on cash in year three instead of year four. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, all right. Yeah. What's that look at? What's that look like out at age 70? Never mind the contractual flexibility in the PUA. Never mind the disclosures that are eliminated from the cleverly cropped illustration files that are sent out. I mean, I've said before, like assume angelic intentions and I really try to, but at some point there's so many layers of like, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. And the implications continue to get like worse and worse. And then the actions of the agent like are are conveniently uh, positioned or manipulated in order to conceal 
Like, like the disclosures. Are the, it's like. That's illegal, Ill, immoral, unethical, shameful, disgraceful. And I'm ashamed that people like that are even in the financial it world. It gives the industry uh, awful. And by the way, these guys are walking around. They've managed to find the letters I, B, and C on a keyboard. Yep. And so people who don't know better, and why should they, conflate that, you know, we're all the same. All, all those IBC guys, all those insurance guys are all the same. Okay. Yeah, we're the same. And that's why there's a over $2 million difference in yeah. long-term cash value. Well, let me modify my statement. If the consumer was aware of all this, then there's no problem. Then there's no problem. Right. It's not the uh, ugliness that I went through a minute ago. And that's the issue. They're not aware. Okay. So one more layer to this fun I've stuff. I've never met. I don't have a single client. Then when, when we go through this that they were aware. No, they never know. And I got to be the one, you got to be the one to break the bad news. It's like not pleasant, you know? And I, but I told the guy, look, just like you said about replacement, if you don't want to replace them, if you don't want to go through that, fine, don't, keep them. But if you're going to change anything, if you're going to change premium levels before you do it, I want an in-force illustration that, that, incorporates that assumed reduction in premiums. Can I have all the pages? So as I was saying, the in the scenario <clears throat> that I built, in both scenarios, in, in the smaller policy, if he kept the two and added one more, or if he started all over and got one big one, for both of those that he would get from me, the, the way the policy is built and the company is chosen for this reason on purpose, among others, but it, the PUA can be paid on an unscheduled basis. Whenever the Any time throughout the year? Throughout the year. Throughout I don't the have to pay on the anniversary date. Yeah. I don't have to keep up with that and hope the deals close on time, whether it's a real estate deal or whatever it is, or the bonus comes in or yeah. the tax comes back or however I'm going to pay that PUA. Because yeah, the, ca the cash will all, the cash flow will always be there right when you expect it. Well, I got a heat, <laughs> I got a HELOC so I can just borrow against it and nothing oh, will go boy. wrong yeah. there. All right. So now let's talk about the PUA rider on one of these two policies, the one that we have the actual full illustration for, <laughs> this part would be eliminated. Uh, okay, so this is detailing the nature of the payments to this PUA rider. There are two types of PUA payments. They can be scheduled or unscheduled. It so happens, by the way, that in this policy, all the PUA is scheduled. The frequency, so this is point number one about scheduled payments. The frequency of scheduled payments must be the same mode as the base policy. The premium mode on this policy, by the way, is annual, which means that the PUA that is scheduled, that is illustrated, is assumed to be paid all at once on one day, and that day doesn't change at any point in time throughout the for the rest of the life of the contract. Well, I have a grace period. Yeah. yeah. The, and then point number two, the scheduled payment amount can be increased or decreased after issue. Yeah, however, increases to the scheduled payment are subject to satisfactory evidence of insurability. What? Yeah. If the scheduled payment is reduced, all future scheduled payments will also be reduced. So you can lower it, no problem. But if you lower it and then in the future want to increase it, well, now you, that requires approval from the company. Now, do you think this... Uh, and I know the answer to this question. And I generally don't like to ask questions that I know the answer to. But this is such an important question. Did the consumer know that? There, yeah, there's no way. I mean. Do you know that if you own one of these monstrosities? And maybe you know that because you found that out, right? The terms and conditions on PUA riders vary dramatically across companies. Yeah. That's 
And that is what it is. Okay, the next one. Okay, now to the unscheduled payments. An unscheduled payment is a rider payment that is not anticipated to be a regular event and is subject to satisfactory evidence of insurability. Okay, so either you're going to pay us, if you want the contractual right to pay a PUA with this company, with this particular contract, it's got to be scheduled. It's got to be scheduled at the same time as the base premium payments. If you lower that payment, you lower all future payments. And if you want to increase, well, then that's going to require approval from the company. And if you didn't want to do any scheduling at all, if you just wanted the ability to pay it throughout the course of the year whenever you wanted, well, that's going to require approval from the company too. It's like, how many... you're this close from not even having a writer on the policy. Like when it's a matter of time before it's so restrictive that you can't do that. That's, this is just in addition to all of the other things. Yeah, that you this is, it, it is not going to happen. This is about the payment of the pure PUA writer on the policy. There's that. And then there's everything we talked about before, which is the blended term PUA. That's a separate writer on the same contract. So the dividends assumed to be, and, and the premiums, they're illustrated on the policy violate the ratios what? <laughs> well that's on that's on one company this company the other there's two companies there one company just clearly says it's violated you know the ratio the other company has six pages of disclosures on their puas and this is where you're pulling this information yes. from so the devil's in the details that's where he lives right here in the pua disclosures right and it does matter from company to company it matters to you and you know, when it comes to any, I don't care what the construct is, 1090, 8020, 8515, base to PUA ratio. Um, if your policy is constructed like my policy and it's constructed like their policy and their it's wrong. Shouldn't you be treated as an individual that you are? What you're going to do is not what he's going to do, which is not what I'm going to do in the future, which is all unknown. It makes no sense to me that, like, this is whatever this is, IBC. And this, whatever I'm promoting, is how you do it. Yeah. It's like appalling. It's almost like you can't get it off of you. Um, But you surely, once you see it, you cannot unsee it. Right. Once you know, you know, and you don't have to relearn. And to be fair to this company, there is a catch up provision. It's a rolling catch up provision. So if, uh, if, uh, payment if scheduled payments were missed, then you can make up for them in a following year. One um, year catch up? I think it's two. The, the catch up provision is only in place after the third policy year, and the duration of the catch up period is two years following the missed payment. Okay. So I got to pay the high premium for three years, or there is no catch up. Or there is no catch up. And if I pay that for three years, then I can catch up for two years. Well, it's more generous than I thought. I thought it was a 12-month catch-up. Yeah. But these companies change riders from time to time. I'm just saying that. You know, again, yeah, and it's like, not about the particular company. It's not about the – but the, he didn't – That's a great company. Yeah, been around a long time. Both of these are great companies. Yeah. And so it's – but it's – from the perspective of IBC, the question is, what is the nature of the contractual authority as it pertains to the management and funding of the policy? And that you should at least know that. Like if, if for whatever reason the, the big four is what you want to do, and that's what you're gonna okay, but at least know what the ramifications are of 
any variation whatsoever from the from what's illustrated and what you actually end up paying. Okay, at least know that. You know, when when we talk to clients um, that have been exposed to this, if they listen to uh, prospective clients listen to this podcast over time. There's hundreds of hours, I don't know how many, a lot of hours available at no cost on this channel. And, and I know that most people don't want to get up and be a life insurance expert. I get that. Most people still today, even in the digital age, they make a decision based on trust, right? They listen, they like us, and they feel like they can trust us. It, but that is across the board. They've listened to the promoters that do this and they've decided to like them and they've decided to trust them unbeknownst to them what they're really purchasing. Uh, yeah. the, the consumer doesn't know. So when you're, you cannot, you cannot make a decision based on numbers on a page because all of these are heavily manipulated. The illustrations. Yeah. The numbers look great. So you will say Yes. And they're manipulated where there's a highest cash value as soon as possible, right? So then, wait, you're violating Nelson's number one fundamental rule. Think long range. If you can't think past next year, proper IBC is probably not a good fit. And, and it's okay. Violates number two. Don't be afraid to capitalize. If you have to borrow against collateralize every dollar that you paid in early – then you're afraid to capitalize. You're afraid to pay a premium, and it's okay, right? I mean, fear is fear. Just be educated and be courageous. And then, you know, it's the whole point of, like, becoming your own banker. Number three is don't do business with banks, i.e., don't be dependent upon third-party lenders. Well, if you have to go do a HELOC or you have to collateralize some asset – to pay the big high premium in year one, then you are you you you're becoming more dependent upon the third party lender, and then so you can leverage that asset that you just purchased. That's a contractual obligation that you have to the life insurance company. You are borrowing their money, so you're compounding your leverage. Now I'm not saying that that can't be done and you can't win. I understand leverage. But is that really what Nelson is – is that really what he taught? Is that really becoming your own banker? And I say, no, it is not, right? And then this is flawed thinking continued. Yeah. And okay. Yeah. Well, if, if my flawed thinking continues, um, you know, don't steal the peas, right? Think long range. Don't be afraid to capitalize. Don't steal the peas. Well, if I have to collateralize every dollar and I had to collateralize assets to purchase this other asset, to collateralize this asset, to purchase another cash flowing asset, and the premium is due, and I can pay these high PUA premiums uh, or make a loan repayment, uh, I'm probably not going to do both. I'm going to slam it down to the bottom, the premium. And I just want to pay 10% because that's my obligation. You know, these haters take our language and, and Nelson's language and Nelson's work and twist it up enough 
But then they still listen. I have it in print because I still get a nugget every now and because you don't know a damn thing, sir. <laughs> and so maybe you should get out of business. Maybe you should stop doing this to your clients. Okay, I digress, but you do what you want. Um, it's just, I'm telling you, these policies generally don't have a great history of loan repayments. All right. <clears throat> and then, you know, that's a very specific case, but it continues in other variations. You know, I've got a whole stack of how, how much time are we into this? We're on an hour. Yeah. I'll, maybe we'll do a part two. Universal life, the same thing. All right. You have these illustrations, they illustrate very well. We have this big old accumulated account value. And then they're they're starting to twist up the language in the life insurance industry. You said it twice earlier, the language out of this whole life policy with this twisted uh illustration with the blended PUA, that a target death benefit. When the word target <laughs> is historically, specifically describes target premium, target death benefit on universal life, which brings me to the point that universal life is, you know, violating the very essence of insurance where it, it pushes the risk back to the owner when you have policies built like this, you cannot get any closer to a universal life illustration right? where the risk is on the consumer. What risk, James? I'm not going to lose any money unless I don't pay a premium. The risk that it is going to perform anywhere close to the illustration. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. All right. So this is just one case, one example, great conversation. I really think it's a great episode, but there is more. Yeah. Right. The, and the thing with him, it's like, I don't want to just be beating up for the sake of it, but like the actual experience, this individual's actual experience with those policies in the event that he keeps them, which if he wants to, fine, uh, will diverge from what he was told, right? Where it's, it's kind of the opposite of like planting a seed that grows into a tree that serves you for a long time. It's more like planting a future liability, right? We're planting. Uh, the the seed of a of unfulfilled expectations of disappointment down disappointment. the future, uh, you know nobody wants to receive a letter in the mail saying oh you got to pay more money to get the same or less than what you already have, um, and and have that repeat year after year, um, and especially for somebody who, and I think this is a lot of people right Not, and maybe it includes some of the agents who watch but I think it is a lot of people there's no. Uh, social media ad buying here. There's no like m like clever marketing to place or situate the podcast anywhere. But the guys who are doing this stuff, they do do that. They and track, so they stock. Yeah, and so uh, if you do a uh, general search, you're gonna come across a lot of this, and you probably already have. You may even own policies that are built the same way. You may be sitting here watching this thinking, oh my gosh, that sounds a lot like what I own. I wonder if it is. Well, it's okay to go back and read over the illustration and the, and the contract. And if you don't have one, you have a right to get them, either from the agent or from the company, and you should. You should know what you own. Uh, but that's what, that's what irritates me, is that whether knowingly or not, and it's beside the point, the, the client who buys into these kinds of constructs is going to form expectations. They think that the premium on the uh, illustration will be payable. They think that they'll have the ability to pay it for a long time. They think that what those numbers illustrated in the cash value are dependable. 
right? And all, all of that's implicit, it's unspoken, it's assumed, and there's never any critical analysis of it. And so, but, but then all we wanna do is we wanna compare numbers on a page. It's like, well, is it a real number? It's like uh, economic statistics from the Soviet Union. You know, that's a- <laughs> You're being generous. It's, it's Soviet GDP is what these illustrations are. Yeah. And so it, you, you wanna depend upon that? Well, is, are they real numbers? Well, how do we know if they're real numbers? Well, you gotta read the contractual terms and conditions of the various writers. And once you do that, you'll start to see, oh, well, maybe that number's not going to be payable. Maybe that cash value isn't going to be there. And look, if all of that was done up front and you knew that what was on the page is made up and you still wanted to buy it, okay. You know, go full, as long as you have full information about what it is you're getting into, great. I do what you want. I'm as libertarian as they come. But- my be, my issue is very often in in virtually every case <laughs> that I've encountered is that th all of these this sort of nuanced understanding is set aside is totally ignored it's coupled with a uh, you know a sign here sign fast get it done quick pay a premium as fast as possible sort of mentality uh, it, it's all and it's all automated right it's all in the click funnel the illustrations are all the same so they're very easy to put together. You know, speaking of pressure, um, a, a couple of these and maybe yours, I don't know, the 7702 change was effective. The de hard deadline was January 1 of 2022. So some of these were uh, built and delivered in December of 2021 under that pressure. You've got to do this now. You've mm, got to do this yeah, now. Use as a marketing you know, gimmick. Here's a couple of points that I want to make. <clears throat> this is a particular case. I spoke about this one at the Think Tank. Here, and this is just, it's egregious to me. 42-year-old female, right? Okay, so the, the background here, she calls our office and says, hey, sends the illustration. She said, I've discovered the infinite banking concept online. Love it. Went all in, then discovered your podcast. Here's an illustration. Do I have a 30-day free look period? What's a free look period for people? Uh, free look. In some states are 10 days free look. Other states are 30-day free look period. Once you take delivery of a policy, you know, there's a delivery document that's date. You're, you're signing a document that says delivery, and it has a date on there. That date marks the free look period, the beginning of the free look period. And we're in Texas currently, but we do business across the country. States are different. You have 10 days or a 30-day free look period generally. I, I think that there may be a state or two with 20-day free look, but I can't recall. That delivery document, when you sign that electronically or physically, that marks the beginning of your free look period. And the free look period is exactly that. It's a period of time in which you can say and decide, I don't want this. Send it back to the, call in the life insurance. I do not want this policy. The premium is sent back to you. The policy is, in fact, never in force, and it's a free look period. So whatever you paid in premium, it all comes back to you. But it's very um, – it's hard dates, right? And so the agent would get a charge back if you did that, and so they're going to tell you every reason not to. And I'm not telling you to do this. 
I'm not telling you to replace anything. As a matter of fact, don't change anything unless you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And you can know what you're doing by working with a competent professional and multiple professionals. Maybe you have an attorney. Maybe you have a CPA. Maybe you have a competent, knowledgeable financial advisor, life insurance agent that has your best interest at heart. Ah, what a place to start. Okay. But they've got to be able to explain to you what you already own. Like, well, that, otherwise, you're just wandering around in the dark. Yeah. That, you were telling me about a story about Jake earlier, and like I obviously have done it so with this case. It's like, bring what you have. Let's go through it. Make sure you understand it. Once you understand it, then you can go and make your decisions. Right. right. Yeah. <clears throat> that, that's another whole case. This particular case, that's how it started. She did this. Right. And it was all under the pressure prior to 7702, December. And she gets the policy, right, and the illustration. So here's the background. She's 42. She wanted to pay $5,000 a year for her retirement in the future. And she, she is uh, subject to work till she's 70 years of age. She's 42. Okay. <laughs> and her husband thinks the whole IBC thing's a gimmick, all right? <clears throat> but she goes forward and does it anyway, paying $5,000 a year in premium. Well, the illustration that she signs at delivery, which must match the premium, okay, shows $5,000 a year for seven years. And she calls him and says, uh, you know, this is, you know, I want to pay $5,000 a year until I retire. Can I pay a premium after year eight? They said, oh, yeah, 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 sure. You can pay 2000 That's not what I asked for. And so, you know, my point here, and this is not an NNI practitioner. It's just somebody with a life insurance license that actually answered their phone, right? And But the guy presents like he's practicing the infinite banking concept. Great company, wrong product because it's heavily dependent upon a non-guaranteed dividend. And then the structure is 60-40. 40% of the 5,000 premium is paid to the base, 60% to the PUA, which there's nothing per se wrong with that. With a seven-year term rider, there's she's 42. Yeah. She must reduce the premium at her age of 50. Mm -hmm. Right? And she's got 20 more years till retirement. So why did they do that? They looked at an illustration in Nelson's book that showed seven years of premium. They looked at another illustration, maybe in Nelson's book, or heard somebody talking about Nelson Nash and some of the illustrations that he did in Becoming Your Own Banker and did a 60-40 split. I have no idea. Why do you use a seven-year term rider? All of this is because he doesn't know what he's doing. She asked for what she wanted, and she was delivered something that he could high pressure, get her to sign and take delivery of, all right? Um, and I want to say this, take this away, right, for you, the listener. When you look at a life insurance illustration, all, right, all policies today are constructed to using the age of 121 years as a life expectancy. Just go out to year 120, look at the guaranteed cash value compared to the non-guaranteed cash value. <laughs> and here's an example of what I mean that I didn't get to, but I'm going to get to the point here. 
high premium policy, young individual, very productive, very successful, pays almost a million dollars in premium on one of these contorted policies for, you know, seven or eight years. And as Ryan said earlier, don't let the premium take two digits off. I don't care if it's 10,000, 100,000, 2,000, 5,000, whatever the premium is for you, embrace it. Right? I'm not we're not trying to throw out big numbers to be impressive at all. That's this particular case. I go out and we before we sit down, I'm like, "Well, let me see that illustration cuz I know um, what I wanted to point out and uh, just checking to confirm what I wanted to point out was in fact true. So I looked at the illustration at age 121 on the guaranteed side of the ledger at age 121, the end of 120 years, right? You're at 121, $2 million in guaranteed cash values that you know is not necessarily going to happen because the company's going to pay some dividends and there's no telling what kind of a premium he is actually going to pay. He can only pay a high premium for a limited number of years. But all things being equal on the same illustration, four or five columns to the right, there's the non-guaranteed cash values. What do you think the difference is? And I asked Ryan this before. Maybe it's on B-roll. There's $2 million in cash value. Yeah. What did you say when I said, what do you think? My first it, number was $5 million. $5 million. And then seven, And then ten. And then 15. And then he's not believing me. He's raising his eyebrows like <laughs> 20, 25, 30, 50, 55 million? No, 51 million 51 on the non guaranteed side compared to 2 million on the guaranteed side. You tell me. And <laughs> if there's rocket scientists listening to any podcast, they're listening to this one. And you don't even have to be an attorney or a rocket scientist. I don't even have to get above third grade math. What do you think? is going to be closer to reality. And I know I'm going over a long time period. I get it. What do you think is going to happen? Neither one are going to be true. It'll be more than $2 million, but it won't be anywhere near $51 million. <laughs> Nowhere near. So the point that I'm making here is you, the consumer, if you're looking at illustrations, um, and you, it, it, you shouldn't until you have a thorough understanding and comfort level of what's really going on, um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't look at Nelson's book. There's illustrations in the book. Go to the year 120. The greater the disparity should tell you something. Okay. And then I want to close with this for me. And I might keep talking. I don't know. I can keep going all day. Okay. Listen, this is uh, a quote from my watchmaker friend. Had a couple of conversations, soon to be a new client, you know, talk to him. Over time, great guy, salt of the earth. You would love him if you met him. I will looking forward to meeting him. And this individual happened to have purchased Universal Life, all right, and <clears throat> paying high premium. And, and he discovers the infinite banking concept. And then he's come to the understanding that this is probably not the best for him. So he just wants to have it corrected. But he's only three or four years into it. I don't know, $97,000 in total premium between him and his wife. He had no idea of the surrender charge or the difference between an account value. So you're looking at universal life illustration. There's always an account value. And they'll play games with, call it a cash value. No, no, it's an account value. Then there is with... Universal life, all universal life, a surrender charge. These surrender charges on this man are from 
13 to 19 years, depending on the age in which you were when you purchased it. All right. So I'm like, he's like, I have this much in account value. Can't we do something with it? I'm like, no. What are you talking about? See the account value. See the surrender charge. Yeah. Yeah. See the net surrender value. Yeah. 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 That's $55,000 less than what you've paid in in premium. Right. And about $35,000 less than the account value. That is what you can collateralize or 1035 exchange or take in surrender value. It was, he had no idea. This is a smart man. Yeah. Right. So this is his quote. I loved it. And I asked him, I'm like, can I use that? He said, sure. You don't have to give me credit, but I'm giving you credit. They'll pull every crayon out of the box to create the illustration. Won't they James? And yes, they will. You were mentioning earlier about the short dated term right of the seven year on the, she was 42. She wants to pay till 70. She can only do it for pay the PUA for seven years. And the reason is because you have a seven-year term writer. And we were talking about my Facebook posts the other day that I made the other day. And one of those was uh, was on this phenomenon of short-dated term writers. And the one-year term is just a very extreme version of that. It's the shortest possible term it's you could the have. Worst version of that. Yeah. But there are, you know, there's a one year, like I was saying in the case of Bob, he could have a 30 year, very long dated one. So, that, you know, there's a, quite a range of possibilities. And it depends and, on how old you are, what makes sense. Sure. Individual. Yeah. Right. yeah. But a lot of, for a lot of people, 30s, 40s, even 50s, you know, a 20 to a 30 year term writer is the, the idea is as long dated one as possible, given who you are. And, you know, why not have the authority to pay a PUA for as long as possible if you could get it? And so, but what I'm noticing is that, it, it within the IBC community, uh, you know, they're not one-year term writers. The people using the one-year term are often not involved within IBC or within like the Nelson Nash Institute. Right. But there are people who are doing IBC and they're using seven-year term for people in their thirties and forties. And the which look, the the rationale that's offered is out of becoming your own banker. And bravo, you know, if we're quoting, I think in the post I said, if we're both quoting from Nelson Nash, then we're already homies. It's, we're just <laughs> splitting hairs right now. Um, but the, 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 the section that is often cited to, yeah. to justify, right? Cause the idea is, okay, once the term writer expires, we'll just go expand the system because this is about getting a system of policies. And I'm like, Hmm. I mean, what, what did Nelson really say in that passage? Okay. Well, here it is. Page 25, he says, furthermore, I am not describing one life insurance policy. This is to be a system of policies. Have you not noticed that when a grocery store becomes successful in one location, then it tends to establish another store in another location? Have you not noticed that banks have branch offices? There must be a reason for their behavior. Then why not expand your own potential by buying all the life insurance on yourself that the companies will issue? And then on all the persons in which you have an insurable interest. At present, does not all your income go through the banks or go through the books of some banking institution? Don't the banks lend out deposits of customers? All they do is capitalize the bank to make it safe for customers to deposit their money and then lend out the money left on deposit. If they don't lend out the money, they will go out of business. It will take the average person at least 20 to 25 years to build a banking system through life insurance to accommodate all his own needs for finance. Okay, so that's that's where this system of... Uh, so. 
take a close look at what he's saying. He's like, look, yeah. if a if a bank or any business is successful and they're doing well, well, it's natural to then expand and start another branch. In the context of IBC and life insurance, that means start another policy. But I'm like, wait, if I have a successful branch and I'm then going to go open up a second one, do I start to fuel the new branch at the expense of the former one? Do I start to neglect the older, by the way, probably more efficient, right? The loan officers have been there longer. Seven years, eight years, 10 years old. That policy is just becoming at the early front end of an exponential curve efficient. Yeah. It becomes more efficient over time, just like the airplane. And of course, it's a rhetorical question. It's like, no, I would much rather... Uh, you know, if I'm successful, if I if the banking business is going well, of course I want to open a second branch. Well, but I also want to continue to contribute to the ongoing profitability of the older branch. And just like you said, the older branch is more efficient. In, in insurance terms, in IBC-style policy terms, the cash value is growing faster per premium dollar as the years go on. Why wouldn't I want to continue to throw fuel on that fire? You know, so I, yes, is there a system of policies? Yes, is there a time to expand the system? Yes, is there a time to go get another policy? I have three of them. I started in 2016. There's a time to go get more policies. But in the policies we purchase, we should want to, ma my opinion, we should want to maximize the duration, maximize the number of years over which PUA is payable. And in general, that requires a long-dated in my view, it should be a level, meaning premiums contractually fixed, term rider. Now, you don't have to do that, right? You can do a, a structure where there's a bit more to the base, a bit less to the PUA. You don't need the long-dated term rider in order to be able to pay a PUA for, let's say, 20 years. Okay, but to get out to 30 years, there's you're going to have to have term on it, period. Uh, and if, especially if you want to do you know more than 50% of the total outlay to the PUA. There's a couple of points there. Would you point out where he said once it's successful or when it's successful, they expand? Have you not noticed that when a grocery store becomes successful in one location, then it tends to establish another store in another location? Thank you. Just right there because you made a good point and a, a great point. And my point is when is a policy successful, right? So on the first policy – um, properly built, it's it's successful from day one, okay? Because you got to lay the proper foundation to build whatever structure you're going to build on top of it. All right, and then we're talking about expansion. You're at three, you know, Nelson had over 45, right? Expansion occurs naturally, right? Where, what you understood when you started is not what you understand today, right? You're going to learn more. You're going to know more. You're going to do more. Naturally, expansion occurs naturally. So when you properly construct a policy, you may not know how you're going to get the premium 30 years in a row, but it's not a contractual obligation. It's a contractual right that you have compared to the high uh 300,000 in the first year, and then I'm only going to illustrate 100,000 from every year after that. When is a policy like that successful? On the guaranteed side, never. On the non-guaranteed side, that's probably not going to happen, maybe in year six, seven, or eight. 
And then I'm just talking about a crossover point that is total premium paid, cumulative premium compared to compared to cumulative cash value. And so, and now I'm just picking a point in time in the future. I'm using that terminology of when is the policy successful? When it started, when you own it, right? And every year just becomes more and more and more efficient. You can't get everything that you need past the underwriter in the beginning. Rarely can you. I've not seen it in my 30-year career of getting everything that I need in one policy in the beginning past an underwriter. The natural expansion occurs to the point where the underwriter is going to say, no, you can't have any more on your life. So then you must look at everybody that you have an insurable interest in. Right? And just because they're younger doesn't mean that's where you start. Right. And by the way, the amount you can get on other people is determined as a function of the amount you have on yourself. It right. And, and so if I'm not able to pay as much premium to buy as much death benefit to generate as much cash value, I'm reducing the amount I can get at a maximum on other people. It is in our own interest. Like if we want to implement IBC and pay a high premium throughout our lifetimes and to continue to expand the system, we should want to have as much coverage as the company will allow and that we can pay for on our own self first in policies we already own so that when we do become fully insured, which at some point you will be, then when you go to insure other people, you have you can get as much as your circumstances would have allowed. But by using an abbreviated or shortened term rider and it, re reducing your ability to pay PUA and therefore to generate death benefit in these policies, we not only have we, like we mentioned earlier, we reintroduce underwriting risk, both medical and financial underwriting risk. Will the future insurable interest even be intact in order to justify an application in the future? Who knows? The future is uncertain. We introduce that risk, but we also in general, just slow the pace of cash value and death benefit generation because we're restarting the life cycle of a policy. And just like you're saying, life insurance, be, dividend paying whole life insurance built for the IBC becomes more efficient over time, which means that it's less efficient earlier on. So if I'm restarting a growth process, I'm restarting the most inefficient growth process a segment of the life cycle and I'm doing it at a later age if I have the insurable interest to even get the application past the underwriter. The net result of that is I'll have less coverage on myself at the time when I want to go insure other people, which means that I won't be able to pay as much as I otherwise could have on those other people. And look, and you're talking about family members. If I'm going to buy a key man policy, I'm all on, on an employee, on a key person. If I'm going to do an executive bonus, if I'm going to do a, a charitable uh, organization is maybe insuring their donors or their board members, it's very limited already what death benefit will be insurable. Right. So yeah. as a as, just to throw out numbers. Very you know, limited. Very limited. So that if, if it's limited on the face amount, then it's greatly limited on the premium. So a natural expansion is you, the people that you have in it, the most insurable interest in. They could be business partners, there's no doubt. But there's a natural expansion. But it you're very limited on what you can even have on yourself, and you're even more limited on what you can have on other people. And let me say this, and I don't remember where it was, um, but you were looking through the Becoming Your Own Banker <clears throat> and talking. You know, Nelson said that 
a proper selection of life insurance. And then he refers to a paid up at age 65 or a paid to 100 policy. And it's around the MEC tables, I believe. Mm-hmm. I right? know what you're talking about. And maybe about. I'll find it and put, it, put the reference in the notes. He properly selected life insurance payable to 65 or payable to age 100 and then added PUA, right? Mm-hmm. right so he might illustrate pre- premium payments for four years in equipment financing. Premium was paid all the way to that man's age 65 and yeah. he was 30 at the beginning. Premium was being paid. Where did the premium come from? So these contorted illustrations where you're forced to reduce your premium because of a seven-year term rider or a one-year blended term rider PUA is not IBC. It is not the infinite banking concept. And then, you know, here often, well, James, what if you're going to pay a million dollars and there's $100,000 to the base? Okay, well, if you can pay a million dollars in premium today, why can't you pay a million dollars in premium tomorrow? Right, this over-construction of a policy to get what I call an artificial liquidity at, at, the, at the cost and at the expense of that policy in your future years is nobody would do that if they understood what was going on, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, you raise a really good point. So, uh, and just to cite some of a specific example in equipment financing if you have the book you can look at it at home but we see there's a net annual outlay column right that is not a premium column it is a net annual outlay column okay and it says 40,000 per year for the first 4 years it just so happens that those outlays are premiums Okay, but in year five, illustration number two, page 59, it says negative 34,600. Okay, this is the uh, taking of a policy loan and then assuming repayments in the amount totaling 18,000 per year in order to pay for the first truck. Yeah. And then in years six, seven, and eight, we see a net annual outlay of 18,000. Okay, so this is then, and those are quote unquote, Repayments, right? Fifteen hundred dollars per month, rounded. It comes out to eighteen thousand. He's per matching year. what the gentleman was doing with associates' finance. Yep, just redirecting cash flows. But here, the reason I brought this up is this is how you can tell that there is still premium getting paid. If you look at the annual loan column, fourth from the left, in year six, it says negative twelve thousand five fifty one. In other words, there's a reduction in the policy loan of the in the amount of twelve thousand five fifty one. But the net annual outlay is 18. He paid 18. The loan went down 12,551. Where'd the rest of the money go? And the answer is PUA. And that happens every in, in four-year chunks all the way through. So there is premium getting paid after the first four years. Now, the base premium is getting paid as well, but it's not coming from the individual's own pocket. Nelson says in here that the assumption is that in the fifth year and beyond, the dividend is used is assumed to be paying the base premium. And he goes on to say and that. And the dividend is not sufficient to pay that base premium until about the 17th year. Right. So it, it's a combination. It's called premium offset. It's a combination of reallocating the dividend, right? Telling the company, look, keep the dividend, use it to reduce the base premium. And if there's still some 
uh, base premium due that the dividend can't cover, surrender some previously purchased death benefit. PUA surrenders, and that's the far right column. You'll notice the death benefit goes down because of that. Yeah, so the, the, the base premium is getting paid from policy value, sometimes called PPV, right? A combination of the change in the dividend election and partial surrender. So the base is getting paid. but there's And, an, and there's an $18,000 outlay going to the life insurance company. And in year six... 12,551 of that is reducing a loan. The rest of that money, the difference between 18,000 and 12,551 must be going somewhere. And the only other option is PUA, right? So you can't, if you know what's going on in these illustrations, you can't look at equipment financing and say, oh, big high premiums for the first four year, no, quote unquote, no premiums thereafter. That therefore, when I'm helping clients today in 2022 or whenever you're listening to this, uh, we're going we're gonna to use the shortest dated term writer possible because this is about a system of policies and you're just going to expand and the insurable interest will be intact and there'll be no underwriting problems. And by the way, we'll restart the commission cycle, but that's a whole other point. <laughs> Look at all that liquidity you have in year one, right? Yes. And this illustration was built in 2000. All right. There, and my point here is that there have been two CSO table changes, commissioner, standard, ordinary tables, the life expectancy in which they use to calculate and construct a policy, right? This was a 1980 CSO table at best, and the life expectancy was age 100. And then, and these changes are important, uh, we had the 7702 change here in January 1 of 2022. And my point being, and he even talks about this, right? He said, these are based on 1980 illustrations or 2000 illustrations when the book was printed. And here we are in 2022. And so I think that uh, agents just try to short pay a premium to match these illustrations. And they have no idea what's going on in that illustration. None. And tell me, why was that $15,000 premium being paid through dividends and premium PUA surrenders. Why? Because it's the obligation out of the 40000 The 15000 is an obligation. That's a paid up at the 65 policy. It's going to be paid whether he wrote a check for it or not. And it's, it was just so wild because if people would just relax and read Nelson <laughs> and, and like accept what he's saying, the results are even better than what is used as an example. Right, if base premium would have been paid out of pocket like it should have been, if the dividends were allowed to go back into the policy to build more death benefit and contribute to cash value growth, if the maximum PUA had been paid rather than just this about 14000 over the course of every four years, all the numbers get bigger. And the numbers are already big. So he it's like went out of his way to build these illustrations and said many times he would never have done that again if he had it to do over again, rewrite, becoming, he wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't either. The amount of time, effort, and energy it took for him to do all that, I would not do to that. To square these numbers away, yeah. It's... Oh my gosh. But we could talk about that forever. Why is the death benefit the way it is? You know, how how inefficient is that policy? Right? When should that guy have started another policy? Could he have started sooner? Could he have started financing sooner? And if so, how? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, Listen, there's a uh, an even distribution of age classes and equipment financing and becoming your own banker. If you are solidly on the understanding of those two constructs with the concept of that book, you don't need all of these contorted new books and and people out there bastardizing his work to make a good and thorough decision with understanding. 
You don't yeah. need them, in my opinion. It's, and it's so weird that, you know, the, the emphasis for some reason is on the cash value as a percentage of the outlay in the early years. But what about the bottom third what? <laughs> of each one of the illustrations where Nelson is showing high payments, quote unquote retirement, but passive cash flow tax free or at, um, and those are withdrawals. These too. are withdrawals. That are not even, you know, it all could have been done better. In the addendum, he says that if he were advising a client, it would have been through policy loans. But the idea is that we're being long-term oriented. We're thinking about what kind of cash flow this whole system would produce. All the examples in the book assume that there's going to be passive cash flow late in life. Hmm? But but that part is never the, you know, what's this policy going to do for me in the long run is always neglected. In order to emphasize cash value as a percentage of premium in the first year. Well, look, Ryan, I'm 55 years old. I don't have 35 years to pay these big premiums and all that. You know, so what can you do? Oh, I can manipulate an illustration without you knowing what I'm doing to show the bigger, higher premiums in the beginning year, right? You can't think long range? Really? How many? How, how old is your youngest child, listener? Mm. Hmm. How old? And how fast did that time go by? I'm just asking. So I may not live for 50. I'm not going to live for 50 more years. But God willing, my daughter and my children will be here in 50 years. Oh, wait a minute. And they'll probably have prodigy. And I can't think in terms of 50 years. I can't think beyond my own life expectancy. Well, dang, how short-sighted do you want to be? Mm-hmm. Why can't I think three generations into the future? Oh, wait, I can yeah. So this idea of time periods, let's just talk through that, reason through that. You know, do I want to become less efficient as soon as possible? <laughs> no. The most efficient policy you'll ever have is the oldest one you own. Well, that would be uh, policies on my youngest child, me personally. Right? I'm not going to be here to see it. Neither are you. Right? But I'm not going to be here to see the the fruit tree that was planted, you know, 10 years from now. I'm not going to enjoy that fruit 30 years from now. What does that mean that I shouldn't do it? Nobody else should have fruit? <laughs> Legitimate questions. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. I, I think it goes viral. I don't know. You know, either because they love us or hate us or both. Right. I had fun. Yeah. Me too. So there's more. Just saying there's more here. Okay. Um, thanks for listening. I really did have fun and I hope you enjoy. Bye. Y'all. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.